Let's read God's word together now. Our reading today is 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're reading verses 12 to 51. And that begins on page 445 of the Bibles uh, that you might have received as you came in. Page 445, 1 Samuel 17, beginning at verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from, Jerusalem, from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine camp came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. 
This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept climbing closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Phil. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here this morning, and I was warmly welcomed this morning as a visitor because it's been so long since it feels like I've been with you uh, running around doing different things. But it's great to be here. I know Benny's uh, done an excellent preaching job through our last series, and I encourage you, if you missed any of those talks, you can download them off the website. Uh, just, it's just been good to reflect, particularly through the Psalms, but reflecting on who we are, uh, who God's made us to be, and who we are in Christ. That's been awesome. So we're just going to spend a few weeks just while we're thinking Psalms, we're thinking Old Testament, uh, a few weeks on David and just seeing some of the, picking out some of the highlights of his life, highlights and lowlights that that we can learn and apply for us today. And this one this morning, as we had that read for us, certainly stirs up some of that um, fighting spirit that go, man, this David's our hero, we want to be more like him. So hopefully uh, we can learn from something from this story this morning because it's from God's word and it's God who speaks to us. How about I pray before we start? Dear Father, I do thank you for your great love to us, that as we read this story, we're we're spurred on uh, to see your strength in action. But Lord, I just pray that you'd give us a clear vision of what it means to have that sort of trust in you, that sort of faith, 
to know that you are a good and awesome God and in control of all things. Amen. We do love a David and Goliath story, don't we? The, the underdog story. We like seeing the little guy beat the big guy. And we see it uh, every year, State of Origin time this week. And we love the underdog, the Queenslander, the underdog. We might have won 10 out of the last 11 series, but again this year, we're the underdogs because we've got the old team. They walk out with their walking frames against the younger guys, the bigger and stronger. They're going to come and smash the Queenslanders. But no, the underdog, the Queenslanders, will get up and win, we hope. And we love seeing us in this underdog story for David and Goliath, for little David. We love uh, thinking, imagine being David, the little guy, the humble guy, walks out there with his sticks and stones and he smashes the big guy, Goliath. See, what can you do when you've got God on your side? We love the stirring up of the spirits sort of rallying around, going, yeah, we love this sort of uh, stuff. And we'd love to see that today. We'd love to have the faith that David had, this crazy faith. They're so amazing and so big, this faith in God that nothing will go wrong, that we want to have the sort of faith David has, this crazy faith, that uh, we, we can defeat our enemies in a sense, that God's on our side. We don't have to go in fear and trembling for anything but God's got our back. Well, I'm here today to say you can have this sort of faith that David has, this crazy faith, crazy that is so big, that's given him such great confidence. But to have this sort of faith that David has, we need to understand firstly what this faith looks like. What, is, what makes up this faith that he has? And what he has faith in so you're not going to just trust anything, but what's so big about God that he can have this amazing faith? And for what purpose? What purpose would uh, we have this faith in God for? Like what, what's, what are we hoping to achieve out of it? That's what we're going to find in this story, a story written so many years ago of real events, but things have real application for today. So firstly, when we say, I want David's crazy faith, we need to understand it a bit better. We need to have a closer look at David's battle. What's going on here? This David and Goliath. Well, actually, when we dig closer, dig in, have a closer look and dig deeper, we realise that it's not actually David's battle to fight. So we set the scene a little bit more. We have Israel on one side, Israel are God's people, and Israel already have a leader. His name is Saul. And he's a big guy, we've told in earlier chapters, a big, impressive-looking guy. And Saul's just no pushover. He's the king of Israel. He's their leader. He's a man to be feared because he's had great military victories in the past. He knows what he's doing when it comes to battles. If we have a look, I'm not going to put passages up on the screen this week because we're going to just look at a few different verses and I think it'd be helpful just to flick the pages and see ourselves. Just flick back a couple of pages. If you've got your Bible open there, I'll read it for you anyway. Chapter 14 Verse 47, it fills in the gaps of what Saul's been up to and what he's like. So 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 47. After Saul had assumed, uh, had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. There were the Moabites, the Ammonites, Edomites, the kings of Zobah, sound impressive, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. 
And it goes also to mention the Amalekites as well, who are big people as well. Wherever he turned, he struck fear into their, their souls. His, you know, God was with him. And he was a mighty, many victories, and he was a great military leader. He's no pushover, is the leader of Israel. But the Philistines have their leader too. We heard him, he's a big man named Goliath. He also uh, has a reputation because he's got his army. They're well equipped with all their weapons. They're standing behind him as well. Saul on one side, big strong character with his army and weapons. The Philistine, Goliath, with his army and his weapons. And they've come to face off. The Philistine's got a sense of arrogance. He's invaded Israel, taken some of their land. says, come and fight me. Winner takes all. Now, for us, we want to picture ourselves as maybe the David in the story. But actually, in this story, we're actually the person on the hill watching these events. You know, you're one of the locals, you know, heard this big battle's going on. We want to see how this is going to pan out. We're a bit neutral at this point in time. We want to know what, who's going to take the victory to know are we favouring the Philistines or the Israelites. So we're on the hill watching, watching these guys face off. And then all of a sudden, uh, the morning comes. The two teams are out. It's almost like you've bought a ticket to the sporting event. You're up on the hill watching. And the Philistines come out. They're cheering and you know, shouting their, their leader. Goliath comes out, a big man, a big, big man. He's about nine and a half foot tall. He's like, thinking, even that's like a big man. And he comes out with all his armour, his, his armour bearer and his sword and all his gear. And he comes out to intimidate the Israelites. And you're starting to think then, uh, what have the Israelites got to offer? How are they going to combat this big man who's challenging them or challenging one of their best to come out to fight? Are we expecting Saul to come out? He's their leader. He's also a big man, not as big as Goliath, but a big man. But Saul's nowhere to be seen. He doesn't come out of his tent. What about one of the Israelite commanders, one of the army members? They've got all their weapons. They, they're well trained. They're experienced fighting soldiers what are they up to well actually we can see what's going on if you've got your bible there uh one time you're back to 17 uh from verse 11 on hearing the philistines words saul and all the israelites were dismayed and terrified they were just hearing him coming, hearing his shouts. And they're going, what is this? And they're shaking in the boots. Have a look down at verse 24. When the Israelites saw the man, now they can see him, they all ran from him in great fear. So what happened to the great mighty Saul and his great mighty army? They're terrified and running away. They've got no courage at all. So even Saul says, look, to the man who fights this great man, this Goliath, and defeats him, I'll give him great wealth. I'll even give him my daughter in marriage. You know, you can marry a princess, you know, be the son-in-law of the king. That's some prestige in that. And also his family will have tax-free rights in Israel. It's like, this is a great reward. But not even that great reward is enough to stir up the courage to fight Goliath. They still see it's not worth the risk. Either that or Saul's daughters were ugly. I'm still trying to work that out. It's not worth it. But they're just looking at Saul, uh, looking at Goliath and just going, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. 
Now, like any sporting event at this point in time, there's always an ad break. And when you're watching a sporting event on Friday Night Football, it's sports bet that comes up. So the sports bet man comes around to you sitting on the hill and saying, do you want to lay your bets? Who you got your bets on at this point? The Philistine, nine and a half foot, foot tall, uh, ready to smash the Israelites. And the Israel army who are... Well, they're still trying to work out who's going to fight, actually. Who are you going to put your bet on? The odds are well in favour of, of Goliath. He's going to take this out easy by the sounds of it. I'll be in on that. Who are you going to back at this point in time? Goliath's just such good odds that you'd put a week's wage on him. He's going to win easy. A week's wage on Goliath. Easy money. But then you look at what's going on. Because now the afternoon's here. And it's game day. Goliath comes out. We hear the roar of the Philistine army. They're cheering him on. Goliath comes out in front of him and starts taunting the Israelites. He's standing there. He's got his armour on. He's got his armour bearer in front of him because he's got so many weapons that he's, he can't carry them all himself. That he's there and he's shouting, taunting the Israelites. And you go, man, that's my man. I've got my money on him to win. Who are the Israelites going to send out? Who are they going to send out? There's no cheer when their man comes out, in fact, he's not a man, he's a boy, a boy comes out. Where's his armour? He's not wearing any armour. He's got a staff and a sling. It's like, what is going on here? What is going on? Now, you've got to understand, this is, this is where we look up our player profile thing. You, know, you Google it up. Who is this boy? Oh, his name's David. He's the guy that, he's the rookie that Israel are putting out. What's his form like? What's his resume? Who's going to speak up for him? Now, we saw it, uh, we heard it read for us um, back in verse 12. Back in verse 12, where we're given a rundown sheet of David. David was the son of an Ephrathite. How many good fighting men have come out of Ephrathite, do you say? I can't think of any. A son of an Ephrathite named Jesse. Is Jesse a good fighting man? Was it good stock? Who's ever heard of Jesse? Who was born from, uh, who who was from Bethlehem, in Judah? It's got to say in Judah, because who knows where Bethlehem is? It's a little village, ten k's outside of Jerusalem. He's a nowhere, nobody from nowheresville, really. Uh, this guy, but Jesse had eight sons. So when you hear that, Jesse got eight sons. Well, there's plenty of sons to choose from. Be the best fighting man or the eldest son. Surely this is the eldest son with some good credibility. But it goes on to say, Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. You know, that's good. They've got military training. They've got age behind them and hopefully experience one of his three old, eldest sons. And it names them who they are. One of them would be a good, good start. But not them. It was David. David was the youngest. He's the runt of the family. The youngest, least experienced, least trained. Again, we're told the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. He's no, no fighting man. He's a shepherd. He looks after animals. He's the animal carer guy. See, he's really a nobody from Nowheresville is the way the story is painting his picture. He's only qualified, really. His only qualification is to bring the oranges on at half time. I mean, you think I'm joking about that. What was his job? What did Jesse send him to do? Bring the food to the boys when they need a break. That's food. But come straight back. You're the orange peeler. That's who you are in this, in this event. 
But surely somebody's going to give him a good rap. Surely somebody's going to speak up for him to say, no, this guy's worth backing. But then we meet uh, David's eldest brother, Eliab, in verse 28. Where Eliab, what does he say of David? Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? The few sheep. It's not even a big sheep farm. The few sheep in the desert. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. It's like you've come down to watch us lose, haven't you? You've come to rub it in. That's all you've come down with. He's not speaking up for David. He's going, David, your motives are all wrong. You should go home, back to your few sheep. That's not a great recommendation. What about Saul? If, if Eliab's like a teammate, it's his brother, he knows him. What about a recommendation from the coach, from Saul? You've got to remember when Saul's talking to David, David's his only volunteer to fight this man, Goliath. But even to him, uh, he says in verse, th- 20, uh, verse 33, Saul says to David, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy and he has been a fighting man from his youth. So I get this, David. You're not even good enough to run out here. I'm not the coach that's going to give you the big pep talk because you're a boy. You have no fighting experience. This guy's going to smash you. It still doesn't fill you with confidence, does it? What about there's a person with another... uh, idea on David it's actually Goliath the Philistine we see in verse 42 when he looks over David he looked David over and saw that he was only a boy you got to picture this Goliath standing there he's nine and a half foot tall he's got so much armor so many weapons he's got his armor bearer standing beside him he looks at David he's a boy with a stick a rod and and his sling he says, am I a dog that you come here with, uh, you come to me with sticks? He says, you're a boy trying to play a man's game. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? So at every point, he's getting smashed down. You shouldn't be here. You have no right to be here. You're going to get killed. At this point, you're sitting on the hill, you're watching all this unfold. The sports bet man comes around. All of a sudden, the odds have changed. David's now 5,001. Goliath's a sure winner. What are you going to put on? Who are you going to back at this point? Goliath's such a sure winner, you pull out a year's worth of wages and put on him. Because Goliath's going to take this victory without any effort at all. I mean, really, who are you going to back at this point? If you say, well, you know, I like the underdog, I would back David. You're kidding yourself, right? That's what all this passage is saying. David's got everything going against him. He's a young boy. He's got no experience. He's got no weapons. What's he got to offer to resist the big man of Goliath? You'd be kidding yourself if you backed David. Yet when David walks out, there's not a fear of doubt or trembling in him. He walks out boldly with no hesitation. He pretends or he's acting like victory is certain. And you've got to ask yourself why. Why is this boy so confident? He's going to get smashed. But why is he walking out so boldly? It's because David knows that it's not his battle. It's God's battle. It's God's battle. It's not up to him and his strength or his ability or his armour or his weapons or his army. But it's up to God. 
See, this battle, and this is how battles were seen back in those days, uh, particularly, that this is a battle between the gods, the Philistine god against the god of the Bible, the Israelite god. You can see how Goliath interpreted that as well in verse 43. When he's on his speech, uh, when Goliath's on his speech, the Philistines cursed David by his gods. He says, my God is going to smash you so bad, he's going to smash your God so badly that the Philistine God will reign and have glory over this land. It's a battle of the gods with the nations who take all. That's the way it's seen. That's the way David sees it too. Have a look at David's speech in verse 45. So after uh, Goliath's been giving his trash talk, David comes back, but he's not trash talking. What we see here is David's theology, how David understands who God is. Verse 45, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. I don't just come in the name of the armies. I come before, with, before you with the God of the armies over me in his name. The, ones you have, the one you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will have victory. Today I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. You've got to think, maybe there's a bit of trash talk in that, trying to get Goliath back a bit. And the whole world will know that there is a God of Israel. This is what this battle's about. God. Who's going to be the mightiest God, the God who reigns? After this event, the whole world will know that the God of Israel is the one who reigns. He goes on, though, and all those gathered here, you know those soldiers who are run away? Most of the Israel army are sitting with you on the hill now. They're ready to do the bulk because their money's on Goliath as well. But all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. See, David is so confident, so confident in God. He says, if God's as big as I think he is, this won't even be a battle at all. This is just a straight victory. If God's as big as what I know he is, this is just a, a process of me claiming victory. And with one stone, it's just pop and it's all over. There is no battle in a sense. There's no, it doesn't go any further. It's over in the blink of an eye. God of Israel, the God of the Bible, has reigned over the Philistine God. This wasn't even close. It wasn't a fight at all. There was no doubt the God of Israel reigns. Now, we want to be David in the story, <coughs> but we're not David in the story. See, we're meant to be the person on the hill, sitting, uh, watching the events. We've just blown a week's wage or a month's wage or a year's wage because we thought the Philistine was sure money to come this in. But this boy has come out and he's turned everything upside down. See, we are meant to be amazed at what just happened. It's just unbelievable going against the odds. And we're meant to be asking some questions. Not the question of how good is this boy... You know, what a great tactician, what a great skill. That's not the question we're meant to be asking. It's how good is this God who claimed this kind of victory using a boy like this, the nobody from Nowheresville? How good is God that he would make this happen? 
And then we start to think, I want what that boy's got. I want that kind of faith in this God. I want to be able to walk out with confidence without trembling and fear against my enemies. I want to know that my God is so big that everything else seems small. That's the faith I want to have in this God. And the only way to have that kind of faith, this faith that with 100% confidence, the only way to have that faith, it's like trusting anything. If you're going to trust anything 100%, you've got to know that it's good. You've got to know that it lives up to its claims. You've got to know that it's worth putting your trust in, whether it's God or whether it's anything else. I want to know if I trust something that it's worth trusting. But how do we know God is worth trusting? David's convinced of it and it worked out for him. But how do we know to have that kind of faith, 100%, we've got to know deep down in our hearts that this God is worth trusting. Before I trust in God, I need to know. Now this is where we need to take a step back of the story because God's been at work for a long time. Uh, If we want David, this crazy faith that David has, we need to know that we've got a God we can trust And we can see it that God has been in control of this whole event the whole time. So if you've got your Bible open there, have a flick back uh, to chapter 16. You'll see at the start of chapter 16 there, at least the heading, Samuel anoints David. This is where Samuel's the prophet. God says to Samuel, look, I want you to anoint a man. He's going to be my man. Saul was my man. He was the king, but he's fallen out of favour. He's done some wrong things. I want you to anoint another man to be king. Anointing is a big deal. God anoints one person to to say that he's going to be. It's only the leaders that are anointed. So you can imagine what Samuel's thinking. Samuel the prophet says, well, God's sending me to this place, Bethlehem. He's sending me to this guy called Jesse. Um, I barely know where Bethlehem is, let alone who Jesse is. Um, But I've got to go to his house. I wonder who's God's got in mind. Jesse's got a few sons. Surely it would be his eldest son, his eldest son with the most responsibility, most experience. The first son is the most special that in traditions of these days, but I am an eldest son, so I take pride in that too. But he's going, surely the eldest son's going to be the greatest. But he rocks up at Jesse's house to anoint the future king of Israel. And Jesse's got his sons lined up. He goes, oh, look, this first son, he he looks impressive. And God says, no, not him. Well, second son, you know, he's not the eldest, but surely he's going to be good too. But no, not the second son, not the third son, not the fourth son. Gets down to the sixth son. God says, no, none of them. Have you got any more sons, Jesse? Oh, yeah, there's the little runt of the family, David, who's out in the sheep. You've got to get, it's not just the youngest has the least status in the family. In this event, it's they've come together for a sacrifice. All the family have come for the sacrifice. Well, all the family except for David, because he doesn't matter. He can be looking after the sheep to allow us. He's not even at this event. He's so not important. But yet, when he comes up, God says, that's the one I want to anoint. So Samuel sort of, I'm sure he was a bit puzzled at that point, anoints David, the youngest, a shepherd. He's our future king. But this is God in control, God choosing, God saying, this is the way I'm going to make things work. God then puts his spirit on David. Now, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, God uses his spirit everywhere to show us Jesus. Uh, If you're a follower of Jesus, that's because the spirit showed you that and the spirit dwells in you. But in the Old Testament, God uses his spirit a bit differently. It only enters one person at any one time. The spirit was with Saul. Saul was disobedient. 
say, now God said, I'm going to put my spirit in David. I'm going to basically put all my eggs in this boy. God's in control. He's got a plan. And then if you look further down the chapter, in chapter 16 from verse 14, uh, you'll see David goes into Saul's service, goes and starts working in the palace. Another crazy event. Saul um, gets an evil spirit come into him. You go, ah, this is interesting. An evil spirit comes into the story. Where is Satan in all this story? Surely Satan's going to resist and have some battle. But here we see Satan at work through an evil spirit entering Saul. Four times we're told that this is an evil spirit and four times we're told it is an evil spirit sent by God. So even the evil spirits are under God's authority. God's in so control, he even tells them what to do. Now when this evil spirit enters Saul, somebody comes up with the idea, maybe to soothe Saul, we, if we get a harp player to play some nice music, that might calm Saul down. Ah, great idea. Where are we going to find a harp player? Someone says, I know a harp player, and it's really somebody. It's not a, an advisor to the king. It's not a commander to the king. A servant to the king says, I know somebody who can play this harp, the harp. This, this shepherd guy, uh, he can play the harp. He's not even talking him up like he's a good harp player. It's just he can play the harp, and he's handsome, so he'll fit in around here in the palace. I'm sure it'll work. So David gets the job, and then we're told that he does such a good job, he's held in high regard. It's like, is that chance or coincidence? God's in control the whole time. God's put David, you know, how did a servant of Saul have influence on who Saul employs and knows David? It's like, there's no chance or coincidence. It's God is in control. So then we get on the battlefield in chapter 17, and then we see Saul discouraging David. David, you're only just a boy. You shouldn't be here. What does David say? He says, no, God's been preparing me for this point. God's been preparing me for this moment. I didn't go to cadets or the army training school. I had none of that formal training, but I've been out in the field for the weeks, months, years as a shepherd. And you can imagine, I'd reckon that's a pretty boring sort of job, sitting watching sheep eat. He says, now, over that time, God's been shaping me and using me. He says, I've uh, killed a lion and a bear. And in that, he built skills uh, and got over his fear, but also a trust in God. Have a look what it says in verse 37, because he says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Because he's saying, it's not that I'm such a good fighter, I can fight the Philistine. He says, I've built up such a trust in the Lord that if he's delivered me from them, I have every reason that he'll deliver me from the Philistine. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, if I've trusted God in the little things and God's come through for me, why can't I trust him in the big things and God will come through for me? So then when we see the face-off with Goliath, David basically says to Goliath, amongst all the trash talk, he says, my God has never failed me yet. Why would he start now? Why would he start now? See, this is David's faith. He's seen God at work. God is in total control of everything that's happened in his life. And he's seen at work. And he's seen how he can trust God in all those things. And maybe fighting a bear or a lion is not such a little thing. But compared to Goliath, he says, I've seen God faithful to me. And helping me at every point. Now when I get to look Goliath in the eye, it's not like 
David's look Goliath in the eye on the battlefield and go, oh man, now I need to trust God. He's trusted God at every step of the way. And God's been in control. God's been shaping him and using him and preparing him. Faith doesn't just get switched on like, now I'm desperate. I need to trust in something bigger. No, in all the little things, we see God faithful, God in control. So when it comes to the big things, we know we can trust God. That's how it's worked with David. That's how it worked with us. That if you've got faith in God, that's great. But is it faith in the little things? Can you trust him in the big things? Not just when you face the big things, but you know with 100% certainty God has been faithful to you, that God is in control of all things. And when you pray to him, that you know your answer will be heard, your prayer will be answered. Your prayer will be heard and your prayer will be answered. That's what God will do because that's what David's faith is like because he knows that's what God is like. He hasn't failed me yet. Why would he start now? I want to take you to another scene because there are times where we're going to have to put this in practice. All through life, there's steps of faith. Are we going to trust God? Are we going to see his faithful to us in us? But there comes a time, the Bible talks about, when the end of our days, when we're answerable for how we lived our life. We come before the God, the great judge of the universe, and he asks you, about why. Why are you worthy to enter the gates of heaven? Why are you worthy to enter into his kingdom as opposed to be eternally punished? What makes you so righteous or what makes you um, justified? And what are you going to say? Because at that point, you think over your life and you go, well, I think I'm a pretty good sort of guy, but I, I know I've made some stuff ups. What are you going to say? You start thinking, what are my odds? What are my chances? Who am I going to back here? Am I going to get the, get the pass into heaven or am I going to be punished for eternity? And who turns up in the courtroom at that point is Satan. Satan is known as a liar and um, uh, liar, deceiver and uh, accuser. Thank you. And he's there accusing you. And he goes, look, I know this, this Ross guy that's come up. He thinks he's all right, but I've got a file. Actually, it's so big a file. There's two files of all of the reasons why he shouldn't be allowed in, that he's not righteous. All the reasons how he's so selfish, how he uh, hasn't cared for others, how he hasn't done the things that he should be doing to glorify God and doesn't do the things um, that he's meant to do. It's like he's stuffed up at every corner. Satan's quickly there accusing you, showing you, and you know what? You can't disagree with him. You go, it's right. Actually... I'm less of an underdog than I thought. What are the odds now? When you look at the evidence stacked against you, you're at any, anybody who's a betting man, the people in the gallery watching on are going, my bet's on Satan because this guy is really screwed up. He's not worthy of the kingdom of God. Who are you going to trust at that point? Unless you can trust a God 100%, that it's not about me and how good I am, about my skills. Just like David, when he went to the army, look, I've seen all this stuff happen, but it's not because I'm so great. It's because God is so great. So before the throne, you say, well, it's not because I'm so good, because I've got such a good God. And you see how God's been faithful to you at every step of the way, how God's been in control of your life every step of the way, that even before you were born, God had sent his son to walk this earth because he knew you were going to screw up. He knew you were going to make a mess of things. So he sent his son to the, walk the earth to live the perfect life, to live the righteous life, the worthy life in a sense. But yet when he sees you, he says, you're going to die a death. You're going to take a punishment 
that's going to separate from you from God. And we've got to restore that. So Jesus then takes the punishment. He then goes to the cross. He then takes the penalty for me. So he takes my unworthiness, my sin, and then gives me his righteousness, his worthiness. So when I come before God, I say, I'm trusting Jesus. I'm trusting you, God, that your son has cleaned this up for me because I have no other strategy. I'm trusting you 100%. Can you trust him with that? Because trusting him with your life, with eternal consequences. And God says, yes, when I see you, I see my son, Jesus. Welcome, good and faithful servant. And he welcomes me into the kingdom. See, that's what it's like. That's what's, this is why Paul writes in Romans 8. If you've got your Bible over there, flick over to Romans 8. It's on page 1757. 1757. We'll just finish just having a quick look at these verses. So Romans 8 from verse 28. <clears throat> Romans 8 from 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Sort of echoes a little bit David, doesn't it? David was called when he was a nobody. As we're called as a nobody. Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's a bit like David, a bit of a nobody. He was the seventh son. Now he's like the firstborn son. The next verse. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. See the status God is giving you when you trust in him? What then shall we say in response to all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we think of the great victories. If God is for us, who can be against us? Like a David talking to Goliath. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now just skip down uh, to verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Yes, Satan will bring the charges. But it is God who justifies. Verse 34. Who is it that condemns? Well, Satan's going to be there condemning you. But it's Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, that's what Satan's trying to do. But shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See what it's saying? We can be more than conquerors. We can be walking with confidence because we've got faith, not just a little faith and not just faith in anything, trusting anything, but a faith in a big God. That's not our battle. It's God's battle and he's had the victory for us. But we need to trust in him. Because he's the one that rescues us. He's the one that saves us. He's the one that takes us into eternity if we trust in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for that great assurance, the assurance David had. Lord, as we think of him, what a bold young man. 
but it's that faith in you, a bold, awesome, mighty, powerful God. Lord, give us that faith that David had. Show us now, whether it's little things or big things in our life now, that we can trust in you, that we, that we aren't righteous by ourselves. We need your help, but we can trust in you that you do make things right. Lord, guide us whatever's going on in our lives. So I know some of us need to trust you in big things going on at the moment. But Lord, show us your love, show us your compassion, and show us that you are carrying us through safe in the palm of your hand. But Lord, guide us and prepare us for that day when we come before you in judgment, that we can come before you boldly, not in fear of Satan and his accusations, but in confidence, knowing that you have won the fight, that it's your battle and you've taken the victory and we're there to take the spoils with you. Lord, give us that assurance. Give us that confidence as we enter this world now. In Jesus' name, amen.